0: Good evening, and thanks for coming. I'm Barry Sarchet in the English department here at Colorado College. And tonight, it's my pleasure to introduce Michael Berube. Berube is better. How could it not be a pleasure to introduce an English professor from Penn State University who holds an endowed chair entitled the Paterno Family Professor in Literature? And this rather unorthodox title, all football fans will recognize it immediately is so appropriate for a blogging punk rocking punk rock playing hockey enthusiast, culture warrior, post structuralist, theorist professor who is also an authentic public intellectual. Professor Barube is the author or editor of many books, including. Public Access, Literary Theory, and American Cultural Politics, Higher Education Under Fire, Politics, Economics, and the Crisis in the Humanities, The Employment of English, Theory, Jobs, and the Future of Literary Studies, The Aesthetics of Cultural Studies, and the recently published and widely reviewed What's Liberal About the Liberal Arts, Classroom Politics, and Bias in Higher Education. Um, It looks like this, and copies of it are for sale in the lobby after the lecture. And I'm sure Michael would be happy to autograph any copies as well. I just offered your (laughs) services. He is also the author of a memoir of the first four years of the life of his son, Jamie, who was diagnosed at birth with Down syndrome. But to simply call this book a memoir would be misleading and to read it is to see what makes Michael Berube not simply an academic who writes, but actually a writer who believes passionately in the value of the humanities and happens also to be an academic. Throughout this moving account of his son's life, he uses philosophers and literary theorists to explain the complex structures and contingencies that shape and impact upon his family's life. Simply mentioning Professor Barabay's books, however, does not give you a true picture. He is also the author of over 100 articles and reviews in both standard academic journals and general readership magazines and papers such as The Nation, American Prospect, The Village Voice, The New York Times Magazine, and just this Tuesday, he added to his very thick Vita an op-ed piece in none other than the Colorado Springs Gazette. <laughs> Adding to this astonishing output is his award-winning blog to which he contributes almost daily. I urge you to visit it. Professor BaruBe's academic specialties are modernism, postmodern American literature, African American literature, literary and cultural theory, and disability studies. But his prose style is anything but the naughty and refractory style of most academic theorists and literary critics. He writes colloquial, witty, downright funny, I'd say many times, urbane, and utterly American English as in the tradition of many American neopragmatists, such as Richard Rorty, his teacher and intellectual mentor. And he does a mean imitation of Rorty, too. Ever since 1991, when, as a very young junior faculty member, Michael published a wickedly sharp attack on right-wing critics of political correctness in The Village Voice, He has been a sought-after polemicist and commentator in a public intellectual. And though he started as a staunch defender of academic multiculturalism and post-structuralism, he soon became an equally deft uh, critic of much of the academic left, of what he calls in his new book the Monty Python left, this is a difficult tightrope to walk, and he has been scathingly criticized for sometimes from the left, for example, uh, about his support for the Afghanistan invasion or his rigorous demolitions of such Monty Python figures as Colorado's own Ward Churchill. This is a public intellectual who is, in fact, an exemplary figure of the intellectual and the primary responsibilities of intellectuals to think and write with precision, care, impeccable research, and always a self-awareness that leads to self-critique. Michael Berube is, in other words, a liberal in the 19th century sense as well as the 21st century sense. He values procedural liberalism The protection of independent thought and the flourishing of civil debate. There is no better person I can imagine to speak on the topic he has chosen for tonight academic freedom, fragile as ever. Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Barabay.
1: Wow, thank you, <clears throat> and thanks for coming out tonight. I'm really honored by that introduction and honored by the invitation. This is my first time to Colorado Springs, and I hope you all don't regret inviting me. Um, two words of clarification before I begin, one about Mr. Paterno. Um, The funny thing about the paternal family professorship, I I think there are other coaches out there who've endowed chairs in one kind or another. I often think of the the Bobby Knight throne chair in basketball studies. Um, Joe Pa, by contrast, was actually a classics major at Brown. Uh, The legend has it that he still sight-reads Latin, whether he does it on the sidelines or not, one does not know. Uh, but he is the only coach who responded to a losing season in 2000 by going back and reading Moby Dick. That No, that I do know because I talked with him about it. Uh, Anyone who wants to ask me about that in the Q&A will get the story of the day. Joe Paterno had me over to dinner and gave me not one but two slaps in the back of the head. Uh, Then he got an an MA in American literature and read Leslie Fiedler's book, Love and Death in the American Novel. Uh, We do know also that He appeared uh, on Penn State's uh, uh, campus some years ago, not to recruit for the library, uh, some of which he has built himself, not with his own hands, but with his fundraising and his donations, but to attend the Virgil Conference, because he considers Virgil, as he put it to me, one of ours, meaning (laughs) an Italian poet. And I thought, well, I asked him if you're going to claim the Etruscans, too, as long as we're on that. So... Uh, on one hand, you know, I actually share something with Joe Paterno. We both went to Jesuit high schools. We are both from that sort of um, Catholic background, although, of course, he stayed in that Catholic background and I left it. Uh, and uh, politically, I think we go to the polls on next Tuesday and we cancel each other out. And this was a uh, source of little concern to me when I, I, I came to Penn State because he once ran for governor of Pennsylvania. Uh, or he, he was named. Uh, he didn't run for governor. He was named by the Republican Party. as something they'd like very much to run for governor. And, you know, 20 years after he turned them down, they got Lynn Swan instead, and that's not really working out for them. Um, but uh, I was especially concerned because my then department chair gave them a copy of Life As We Know It, my book about Jamie, who is now 15. And that book uh, takes aim same at uh, certain social conservatives uh, who I think, uh, <clears throat> you know, on the one hand, they take one position on abortion, but on the other hand, when it comes to disability among born people, they're not always so progressive. And I said, you know, this is very nice of you to give them this uh, book. Um, chapter two is all about the question of what's called the selective abortion of fetuses with disabilities, a profoundly difficult ethical question. Um, you sure you want the lead with that one? And my department head said, Michael, they're adults. And yes, indeed, he was right. I got a very, very nice letter from Sue Paterno about the book. The second thing I'd like to clarify before we begin about uh, Ward Churchill, who I know is like right up the road somewhere, um, I want to explain a, a word or two about what I mean about the Monty Python left, because of course Monty Python did a great deal of work on the comedy of left sectarianism, and most people would think of you know, Life of Brian and the Judean People's Front and the People's Front of Judea. That, <laughs> I actually belong to one of those organizations. I don't remember which one, but, but, um, but I, their, their uh, critique and parody was spot on. But actually, I was thinking of another passage from Life of Brian. It was not uh, Ward Churchill's Little Eichmann's remark. Uh, that he uh, uttered, actually, uh, he first uttered it in September 2001 at a peace rally in Vermont and horrified his listeners. You know, so the idea that you know, the left was just waiting to hear someone compare the World Trade Center dead to Eichmann is a little spotty, but... Uh, The very weird thing about the Churchill brouhaha, of course, is that it erupted three and a half years later in early 2005 when someone got wind of a speaking engagement at Hamilton College, at which point uh, Churchill issued a follow-up essay uh, not on the, um, the justice of roost, roosting chickens, but a, a follow-up in which he explained that by, uh, when he spoke of little Eichmanns, he wasn't speaking of everyone in the World Trade Center, just those involved in global finance. So obviously, as he said, the food service workers, janitors, children, and passers-by were clearly exempt. And so I posted a thing on my blog that said, you know, I know we've heard this before, it's from another moment of life of Brian, where the only time Christ himself actually appears in the movie, he's very far away and he's giving the Sermon on the Mount, and a bunch of people are squabbling in the background saying, Blessed are the cheesemakers? <laughs> and someone else says, Well, it doesn't mean that literally, it's uh, dairy producers in general. <laughs> and that's what I thought. You know, the food service workers, the janitors, the children, the passers by, they're okay. But what about the copy guys on the 82nd floor? Are they imperialist? Oh, it was a very imperialist copy shop on the 82nd floor. And it was really quite grotesque, actually, and to find people you know, lining up to defend not only the little Eichmann's remark but the rather lunatic, uh, really lunatic parsings of it thereafter I found was worthy only of Monty Python. And yet, and yet I have to say, uh, The Shadow of Churchill uh, looms a little bit over, over my own book because I was writing it in 2005 uh, as um, suddenly Ward Churchill became the poster boy for everything wrong with the academic left. Uh, And the question was, does one throw him to the wolves, Uh, throw him to the O'Reillys and the Hannitys of the world, Um, or does one uh, line up uh, behind him, not in defense of his free speech, as I'll explain in a moment, but in defense of his academic freedom, which is quite another thing. Now, I realize over that year and uh, the realization has only gotten stronger this year that very few people know what, what academic freedom is or why it matters. And I thought, well, maybe that's not so surprising. This is a time when a lot of people don't really get the whole Fourth Amendment to the Constitution and why that matters. But what I'm going to argue tonight is not only that academic freedom is under attack, but that we're now dealing with a coordinated program of obfuscation as to what academic freedom itself is. The short answer is that academic freedom is under attack, liberal universities are under attack, whether or not they're liberal or not, uh, for pretty much the same reasons that liberalism generally is under attack. American campuses do tend to be left of center of the American mainstream, particularly with regard to cultural issues that have to do with gender and sexuality. And if you take the combination of a largely liberal secular professoriate and a generally under-25 student body, you will get a local population that by and large doesn't see gay marriage as a threat to the republic. And after 9-11, and by the way, this is one of the things that the gay marriage uh, uh, opponents really worry about. They know that in another 20 years or so, people are going to be about as concerned with gay marriage as they are about miscegenation now. Uh, They know that the demographics are not on their side. Excuse me. And after 9-11, again, for obvious reasons, many examples of mainstream liberalism have been denounced as anti-American. I'm not talking about Churchill here. I'm talking about a cottage industry of popular right-wing books, in which liberalism is equated with treason, that would be Ann Coulter, with mental disorders, Michael Savage, and with fascism itself, Jonah Goldberg, forthcoming. Coulter's book also mounts a vigorous defense of Joe McCarthy. Michelle Malkin has written a book defending the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. In that kind of climate, it should come as no surprise that we would be seeing attacks on one of the few remaining institutions in American life that is often, though not completely, dominated by liberals. Now, of course, in one way, we've seen this kind of thing before. I don't want to be too alarmist. Uh, The American Association of University Professors, which created the the definition of academic freedom, was actually created back in 1915, partly in response to the firing of professors who were deemed at the time to be insufficiently patriotic or dangerously pro-labor. Back in those days, in fact, uh, those were the good old days. You could simply call up a university president and have the dissident of your choice fired. (coughs) And even though back in the uh, days of PC in the 90s, uh, people claiming that political correctness was the new, new McCarthyism of the 1990s, and now the left sees the current attacks as the new, new, new McCarthyism of the 21st century, the truth is that abrogations of academic freedom in the real McCarthy era were far more serious, far more widespread than anything we've seen over the past five years. So in one way, it's the same old, same old. We're not anywhere near yet loyalty oaths and mass firings, and academic freedom as my title suggests, has always been a tenuous thing. Especially in wartime and Cold War time, whenever liberalism is under attack, generally it's a fair bet that academic freedom will be under attack too. But in another sense, this is an inadequate answer. First of all, not all college professors are liberals, believe it or not, and attacks on academic freedom are dangerous partly because in some instances they can undermine the intellectual autonomy of conservative professors. And I don't believe it's really the same old, same old in another way, because the one thing about this new formation that is unprecedented, first is demographic. Two things, really. College professors have, in the aggregate, become somewhat more liberal over the 35 years. The studies on this are really quite fascinating, especially when you factor in gender, uh, because we didn't have gender 35 years ago. And now we do. And it seems that uh, uh, faculty of a certain gender tend to be more liberal in the fields they dominate, which also happen to be the lowest paying fields in the university tend to lean most, furthest left. Um, But most of the studies done recently on uh, faculty in the aggregate, I think, tend to be exercises in cooking the data. I'll say a little bit more about that later on. The other difference between now and McCarthy or the World War I era is strategic because this is the first time we've seen an organized campaign, a national campaign, to undermine academic freedom by appealing to the ideal of academic freedom. And the reason this has enjoyed such success right, is that so few people, faculty and students and state legislators included, have any idea what academic freedom really means. Now, to, be, to go local for a moment, um, I'll explain that we have, in Pennsylvania, have had over the past year, from 2005 to 2006, a House Committee on Academic Freedom. Uh, last year it held four hearings in the state. They were largely uneventful. One ranking Democrat on the committee even described them as a waste of time. But it is yet to be seen whether they really are a waste of time because they're writing their report as I speak. And we don't know. Is there, I mean, this is, this is politics as usual for you. There are two reports there's going to be a Republican report and a Democrat report. And whether or not which one sees the light of day depends on how many Republicans the Democrats can persuade to jump ship uh, and how many Republicans stay on board, even though some of them may not be returning to the Pennsylvania House in 2007. Uh, And that's not an idle speculation. The guy who proposed all this, the, the person whose brainchild it is, Gibson Armstrong, lost his primary. So this is very much his parting shot to us all. But it's worth noting that the bill that created this House Committee on Academic Freedom stipulates, and I quote, that if an individual makes an allegation against a faculty member claiming bias, and they, unlike me, use it without scare quotes, if a person makes an allegation against a faculty member claiming bias, the faculty member must be given at least 48 hours' notice of the specifics of the allegation prior to the testimony being given and be given an opportunity to testify at the same hearing as the individual making the allegation. Now, I think some people read that paragraph back in July of last year when it first passed the Pennsylvania House, and they imagined some sort of dramatic scenario in which outraged conservative undergraduates would stand up and say, J'accuse! that hapless liberal faculty members who had but 48 scant hours to get their act together and haul themselves before the board of inquiry. Well, things didn't work out quite that way. There were no direct confrontations. The overwhelming majority of people from within Pennsylvania who testified at these hearings testified that we've had a few things here and there, no major problems. For example, at Penn State, sorry, at N State, we... Uh, did a little self-study on what uh, student grievances looked like over the last five years and found that we had 13 complaints in a student body of 40,000, an average of, you know, 2.6 a year. And those 13 complaints didn't fit any pattern. uh, As our local paper reported at the time, in one of them, a Muslim student suggested that a professor was opposed to Islam. Another student complained that a professor was too conservative. We fired him. Uh, That's not funny. In fact, the other thing that wasn't funny about this report was that yet another professor was uh, faulted by a student for being too sexually explicit in class, and I thought, oh, God, no. The last thing you need is an inquiry into those folks. There'll be many more than 13 complaints, I'm sure. Though it's undoubtedly true that some conservative students at Penn State believe they have too many liberal professors, Outright instances of punitive liberal bias appeared to be extremely rare, which is not to say that they never happen or that they may be underreported or that they aren't dramatic when they do happen. Now, to our shame, <laughs> Pennsylvania is the only state to have passed one of these laws. When it passed, I, my, I just dropped my head on the desk and said, even Florida defeated this stuff, you know. What the hell? Who was asleep at that switch uh, in Harrisburg? And it was—it was, it was uh, the the, the backstory is not very interesting. It was a bunch of horse trading, really. Uh, there were only seventeen members of the GOP in Pennsylvania who were really, really concerned about this. They were your basic culture war right. And if they ran the state, it would be gay marriage, flag burning, and liberal professors twenty-four-seven. And they're in conflict with the older GOP, who like "Don't you know, we have real business to transact here? There are wealthy people we need to transfer money to." <laughs> You're distracting us. <laughs> But, like I say, the horses got traded and uh, they got their hearings, which were supposed to be a consolation prize, but like I say, we will see what the report looks like. But thanks to the efforts of David Horowitz above all, bills like our own HR 177 have been introduced in about 20 states so far, and it's clear that in many cases the legislators sponsoring them are doing so in the name of preserving academic freedom. Now, one of the things we did in Pennsylvania that I think was a mistake is that we didn't invite Horowitz to to testify ahead of time. That's what they did in Georgia. And when Horowitz himself showed up, even his own backers in Georgia backed nervously out of the room. Um, Florida, likewise, uh, they got it through an 8-2 party line committee vote, but it never got onto the floor. But the person who shepherded it through that vote, Dennis Baxley, argued that the legislation would help to combat what he called leftist totalitarianism on the part of dictator professors by allowing students to sue professors whenever they believe their beliefs were being disrespected. At the University of Florida, the Independent Florida Alligator reported, quote, students who believe their professor is singling them out for public ridicule. For instance, when professors use the Socratic method to force students to explain their theories in class would be given the right to sue. And here's Baxley's example. Some professors say evolution is a fact. I don't want to hear about intelligent design, and if you don't like it, there's the door. Um, Horowitz, to his credit, has since made clear that, uh, and I I believe I mentioned this in the op-ed, that he himself opposes the teaching of intelligent design in biology classes. I have two things to say about that. It took you long enough to say it, first of all. Uh, These things have been circulating around the country for three years. Most of the people who have picked them up are not economists in the legislature who are outraged at the predominance of Keynesian over Hayekian economics on campus. Most of the people picking these up are the creationists. That's who have spearheaded these. Uh, there's one exception I'll mention. Uh, in Ohio, State Senator Larry Mumper introduced his version of the bill. He was asked by the Columbus Dispatch what he would consider controversial matter that should be barred from the classroom, and he replied, religion and politics, those are the main things. I believe I mentioned this in the book and say bad news you know, for um, political science, history, philosophy, sociology, religious studies departments, uh, good news for people who think uh, universities should be devoted to sports and weather. <laughs> now, I'll give you one, more, uh, one little more backstory on our own Bill 177. Uh, this past spring, I was a guest on a conservative, conservative talk, uh, uh, radio talk show hosted by Penn State students. It's called Radio Free Penn State, and I'll get back to that motif as well. <laughs> And they want to know, look, uh, Professor Barabay, what's so bad about a House uh, committee being convened with the purpose of making sure that universities are abiding by their own grievance procedures? Especially for students who feel they've been discriminated against on political grounds. And I replied that actually uh, Gibson Armstrong's original proposal for such a committee said no such thing. On the contrary, the original proposal called for the creation of a committee that would investigate everything from reading lists to hiring practices. It would travel throughout the state holding 15 to 20 hearings on liberal bias, hearings in which accused professors would have no opportunity to respond. That little passage I read you earlier, that was a late amendment. Furthermore, the original language of 177 sought to ensure that students would be graded on their ability to defend their perspectives. Now there is a recipe for relativism, Relativism, if if you saw one, you have to give a student an A because he keeps citing Genesis in his class on evolutionary theory. Like I say, between the first draft and the last, the adults took over and diverted the attention of the committee so that its focus lay largely on the viability of university grievance procedures. But that was not what the hard right culture warriors wanted. And in a weird way, even though this was a good outcome, it wound up confusing the meaning of academic freedom still further because here we had a House committee now investigating academic freedom by making sure that students had the right to speak their minds. The actual principle of academic freedom stipulates, and I quote, that teachers are entitled to full freedom in research and in the publication of the results subject to the adequate performance of their other academic duties. It's that last clause that has tripped up the word Churchill in the past year. But this principle expressly insists that professors should have autonomy from legislatures, trustees, uh, alumni, parents, and ecclesiastical authorities with regard to their teaching and research. And that last bit about ecclesiastical authorities is no mean clause. It is debated all the time at Catholic universities, at BYU, at variously religious affiliated institutions. But the point is that it is about teaching and research. That's what this principle is about. It is not about First Amendment free speech rights, and it's certainly not about students' rights, which are quite different. AUP has a position on students' rights. They're just different from academic freedom. In this respect, I consider academic freedom one of the most powerful legacies of the Enlightenment, which sought successfully in those nations most influenced by the Enlightenment to free scientists and humanists from the dictates of church and state. And it's precisely that autonomy from legislative and religious oversight that helped to fuel the extraordinary scientific and intellectual efflorescence in the West over the past two centuries. One of the things that got us off the ground, so to speak. It has served as one of the cornerstones of the free and open society, in contrast to societies in which certain forms of research will not be pursued if they displease the general secretary or the council of clerics. And today, The paradox of legislative academic bills of rights is this. They claim to defend academic freedom precisely by promising to give the state direct oversight of course curricula, of departmental hiring practices, and of the intellectual direction of academic fields. In other words, by violating the principle they claim to defend. Horowitz himself claims that the academic bill of rights does no such thing. Now, and that's true, by the way. The the bill of rights itself is fairly innocuous. If it just existed in the ether, who cares? You know, it would be one more statement of principles, blah, blah, blah. Uh, the only one that's really noxious is the 8th, which would bar uh, professional and scholarly organizations from taking positions on matters within their field. But, you know, not a lot of people are going to take to the streets on that one. Um, it's just not the kind of thing that has any traction. The only way these, these bills of rights become noxious is if they become law. They had, they, the, his own Bill of Rights, is uh, and contains a great deal of language from the AUP's Statement of Principles on Academic Freedom. And he insists that it would forbid the hiring and firing of any faculty member on the basis of his or her political beliefs. But, and I didn't put this in the op-ed, that's what David Horowitz says for public consumption. To his supporters and funders, by contrast, he says that his mission is to, quote, get into the trenches with the radical left and battle them into submission. Okay, that's a real quote. It's from one of his fundraising emails. You think, well, what does he mean, what does he consider the radical left? Interestingly, it's not the mid-'70s Black Panthers that he joined. <laughs> after most responsible white liberals had backed out the door. No, as he explains in the letter, he is doing battle with the ACLU, the People for the American Way, and the AAUP. You know, we're not exactly the weather underground or the Symbionese Liberation Army, but we'll have to do. And you think, well, maybe he's engaging in a little rhetorical excess, right? A little hyperbole for the fundraising, really all he wants is for faculties to more, be more ideologically diverse. Well, you would think wrong. Here he is in his 2000 book, The Art of Political War and Other Radical Pursuits, one of Carl Rowe's favorite books. Quote, you cannot cripple an opponent by outwitting him in a political debate. You can only do it by following Lenin's injunction. In political conflicts, the goal is not to refute your opponent's argument, but to wipe him from the face of the earth. This brings up an important point. <laughs> no, it really does. Um, I spend a whole chapter, something like, I think, I don't know, 60, 70 manuscript pages. It's the longest chapter in the book, and it's called Postmodernism. And a number of people have reviewed the book and said, what the hell does postmodernism have to do with liberalism or with academic freedom? And well, if you read the chapter, you'll find I'm actually critical of a great deal of postmodernism. Um, and I staged the Habermas-Leotard debate largely to the detriment of Leotard, but I think it's such an important debate because not only is it a debate, it's a debate about what the ends of debate are. It's awfully abstract, but I think you can apply it, you know, add water and, and, and apply it to almost anything uh, you care to name. Because of course, Leotard insists on dissensus, on the heterogeneity of language games and Habermas insists that the goal of communicative reason is to reach consensus, an ideal speech situation that leads to agreement. And Lyotard complains, well, if you predetermine that agreement is the point, then you really got your thumb on the scales. He's right about that. But Lyotard, who's pretty much axiomatic on a wing of the academic left that I'm extremely impatient with, Leotard uh, doesn't realize that in order to uphold dissensus and heterogeneity of language games you have to have a sort of second order consensus that that sort of dissensus is a good thing. I'll Give you one small example again I'm not making this is not from life of Brian although it keeps coming up. I had a graduate seminar in 1995 in which every single participant was convinced that Leotard was right that consensus was terror. Those are Leotard's words. And I said, okay, um, well, why are you thinking that the heterogeneity of language games is uh, um, an ethical goal, uh, an ethical ideal, uh, almost like that of uh, species diversity? I mean, what about the language games of, I don't know, Mormons or Taliban or Walmart or what have you? Um, Shouldn't uh, we at least try to negotiate the differences between language games and make them intelligible to each other? No, they said, that would be harm. Uh, do harm to the heterogeneity of language games, and I said, well, why don't we do some harm to the heterogeneity of language games? You know, like a little harm. They said, no, no harm. And so I congratulated them on being, being unanimously against consensus, and <laughs> but the, what makes it really Monty Python is that the next day a student came to me very timidly in office hours and said that she disagreed with everyone but was too afraid to say so. <laughs> I Really, I'm not making that up. And she also knew, she said from the comments, that she was the only registered Republican in the class. Now, the day that registered Republican lines up with Habermas, you know, that, that proves what the academic left is saying, right? But uh, it really does. It's, it's that moment in life of Brian where Brian says, don't follow me, you're all individuals, and thousands of people say, we're all individuals. And one guy says, I'm not. And so I really do think, not, not, I could go over Habermas' leotard all night, but I think there's a, an important principle point here. What to do when people disagree? Because you know people disagree all the time. I'm, I'm already 45, and I still haven't gotten people to agree with me about everything, and I don't know what's taken you all. Um, but especially when we go back to the question, you know, say, of selective abortion of fetuses with disabilities, it's so incredibly difficult to parse that one. And the idea that you're actually going to achieve any sort of consensus, even on the parameters for deciding what counts as a decision, is really uh, uh, quite fallacious. And so that you can proceed in two ways. One, you can try to create plural public spheres in which people try to deliberate Deliberate liberate non-coercively. You try to create a sort of pragmatic pluralism, not only as a matter of theory, but as a matter of practice. I would suggest that one. The other one is that you exterminate or expel the people you disagree with. Um, and I think, as uh, Horowitz's uh, 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 citation of Lenin suggests, you can find that attitude both on the far right and the far left. And there should be no debate about that. Horowitz was a member of the extremist fringe 40 years ago. He's a member of the extremist fringe now. He just sort of exchanged fringes. And thankfully, you know, he's, he's also uh, a slipshod in everything he does. He had uh, come to claim that on the eve of the 2004 election, a Penn State biology professor showed his class Michael Moore's movie, Fahrenheit nine eleven, uh, presumably to get people to, to vote Democrat. Uh, I don't know. Even, it turns out it didn't even happen. But for six months, we tried to hunt down this fool, you know, who instead of teaching people about mitosis was showing them Michael Moore. And part of what I wanted to know was, who, th- who would think that would work? Who thinks that showing, screening you know, Fahrenheit 9-11 for two hours would cause you know, the, the scales to fall from the eyes? What was I thinking? They let the bin out of the country? I have to vote for the Democratic alderman. I feel the same way about George Churchill. Who really slapped their foreheads and said, my God, he's right. They were like little Eichmann's. Uh, what kind of political effectivity do these, these things have? But it turns out, as I say, that um, Harwood simply made this one up. He had at least no way of corroborating it. And when he was questioned on this by uh, Pennsylvania Democrat, Lawrence Curry, he simply dropped the claim and then got very angry that he had been asked at all. And so I started to ask, why, why are 20 states even considering legislation proposed by this man, legislation that con- you know, claims to defend academic freedom by placing professors under the control of the state? Why now does he have the ear of the Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives? Well, I think he's managed to pull off this rhetorical and political feat precisely by construing academic freedom as a property of students rather than teachers, and he's even formed an organization called Students for Academic Freedom, uh, the purpose of which is not to uphold the full freedom of professors in the research and the publication of the results, but rather to give students a national forum and a website in which they can complain about their liberal professors. Uh, I looked at that website. One of my co- uh, colleagues, even snarkier than I, uh, calls it a uh, glorified bathroom wall with a search function. Some of the things I found on that site seemed to me plausible, seemed to me that people were going on explicitly political tensions in class. Some of them were not very impressive. as the, uh, In the case of the student who complained that his international relations professor talked about the blue and white of the Iraqi flag as being not like other Arab flags, which tend to be red, green, and black, and in fact, it looks a little bit like the Israeli flag, which is blue and white. The day that this is considered by us is a bad day for education. And as I mentioned in the book, it seemed to me that you know, Horowitz has put together something like a national whining network for some of the least prepared and least capable students in our classrooms. But on the other hand, you know, his, this is a kind of impressive uh, achievement to redefine academic freedom as freedom from liberal professors. Now, I, wanted to, I have a little red book that David wrote. I don't know what to call it, um, but it's little and it's red. And it does give uh, students who want to organize a chapter on their campus uh, talking points for what to say about academic freedom. And the first, it has a little Q&A in the back. The first Q is this. Is there a conflict of interest in appealing to the legislature for help in the case of public universities since the principles of academic freedom seek to protect the university from political interference? The answer is, there is no conflict. <laughs> that was easy. No. Watch what happens. This is, it's a long quote, but let's, let's stay with me. As if you have any choice. Uh, no, you can leave. That. The state legislatures and publicly appointed boards of trustees have a fiduciary responsibility to taxpayer-funded institutions and their tax-paying supporters. Among them is the responsibility to ensure that these institutions serve the whole community, and not just a partisan political or philosophical faction. If public universities become politically partisan, they act to subvert the democratic process, which is not what their creators intended. It is illegal under state patronage laws to use state-funded institutions for partisan purposes. No one has the right to create a po- closed political fiefdom at public expense. And you can see these last couple sentences building on each other, right? We started off as you know, um, you know, partisan professors now turned into actually creating fiefdoms that work specifically for elections. Such exclusionary practices are the very opposite of academic freedom. Most importantly, there is a world of difference between asking the legislature to, in, to defend principles of academic freedom, intellectual diversity, and student rights, and asking them to interfere with the university's proper academic functions. Okay, little red book. If you, if you know Three Card Monty, also uh, hides the little red card here. Um, so first, universities with a lot of liberal faculty are considered now uh, redefined as uh, fiefdoms in violation of state patronage laws. And academic freedom, you'll notice, has become academic freedom, intellectual diversity, and student rights. Completely different game than we started with. While professors who teach about the history of race in the U.S. in ways Horowitz does not like, that's a real example, my colleague Sam Richards at Penn State, have become partisans who subvert the democratic process. Well, did it have any local effect? Who knows? But this past year, some students at Penn State uh, tried um, to promote academic freedom by doing a cute little mock-up of the Berlin Wall to symbolize their oppression at the hands of their liberal professors. One student was quoted in the... This was actually the Young Americans for Freedom um, and not, the, not uh, the Students for Academic Freedom. One student was quoted in our paper, the Daily Collegian, as saying communism was pretty much dead, but at Penn State it's still one of the most heavily taught subjects. Another agreed that there were many liberal courses at Penn State, especially in sociology. His minor. Now, apart from the question of whether communism is heavily taught at Penn State or whether it is synonymous with liberalism, perhaps I thought it would be worth pointing out to conservative students at my campus and elsewhere that the people of the Eastern Bloc, the people on the other side of the real Berlin Wall, suffered mightily and died in great numbers under communist rule from the forced collectivization of the farms through the show trials and purges, the jailing and exile of dissidents, the crackdowns in Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Afghanistan, and Poland. So surely, then, one liberal response to Penn State's Berlin Wall is that such gestures actually trivialize the history to which they pretend to appeal, as does radio-free Penn State itself. For it is one thing to experience political oppression at the hands of Stalin or Brezhnev. It is quite another thing to have a liberal sociology professor at a course you have chosen to take, at a university you have chosen to attend. It has taken me so long to understand that part because these people speak as if it's K-12 and they speak as if they're strapped into their seats. But I can't imagine that Václav Havel or Lech Verlenza would be terribly impressed with Penn State's little Berlin Wall or the bravery of those who built it. Nor would they think much of a putatively conservative movement whose goal it is to place educational institutions directly under the control of the state. Now, you know, I hate to complain about these kids today <sighs> and say... Things were better back in 1982 when I graduated. But when I went to Columbia, which was a very liberal campus, actually encircled by concentric rings of Trotskyite splinter groups, (laughs) and they were so annoying and so vexing. And then when I left, I went to the University of Virginia. I wrote them like a a forgiveness letter, come back, you know, all is forgiven. You know, 30 hours work for 40 hours pay was a good idea. The conservative students I met at Columbia just didn't spend all this time complaining about encountering liberal and leftist professors, any more than I complained about taking a course in Jacksonian democracy from a professor who made it clear that his hero was Ronald Reagan. The conservatives I knew as an undergraduate were pretty smart by and large, and though most of them weren't planning on careers in academe, which is another story, They did think it was enormously useful for them to take some of the most liberal professors they could find, partly in order to hone their political skills by finding out what people believed and why they believed it. The better, of course, to argue against them in later life. They didn't fear that they would be brainwashed by taking a course with a professor who was critical of the way that Reconstruction betrayed the ex-slaves of the South. I'm thinking here of Columbia's Eric Foner. They didn't fear being brainwashed by anybody. They conducted themselves like actual adults, which is how I ask my students to conduct themselves today. Now, there is one question here that I'm I'm skating over. It was uh, brought up to me by one of my interlocutors, actually a person who worked for a British financial magazine. He said, yes, all very well. But you know that some classroom discussions can create what he called a kind of moral mist in which some positions are understood, just kind of understood to be more moral than others. And he was thinking about economics and he was thinking about globalization. I think it's a great phrase, though. Um, the way you set, tone for, uh, set the tone of a discussion, the way you frame a discussion, inevitably, inevitably creates a moral mist. And my, I picked this up in the book and I argue, well, you know, um, even though you want to make sure the moral mist isn't so thick that some people can't breathe, uh, the idea that you can do without it completely, I think, is an illusion you're better, off, um, you're better off without. And I don't mean simply we have to embrace our ideology. I mean the day that a student raised his hand in my class and said, is Willa Cather trying to queer the prairie in my Antonia?" And I said, you have to explain to the rest of the class why you're using queer as a verb and what that means. But I signaled right there that this would be a gay-friendly classroom and that we would not flinch from discussing gender and sexuality in such ways, and if it made you uncomfortable, so be it. And I don't see that I could possibly apologize for that. But I want to de- dwell uh, very briefly on two kinds of devil's advocacy that I think people kind of overlook when they discuss classroom discussion. One, about those uh, kids who take uh, liberal prof- and leftist professors to find out how to argue. I uh, borrowed a, a passage from a, a liberal former college student, now blogger and journalist, Ezra Klein, who uh, wrote some years ago, know uh, it was only about two years ago, that he he, ca- he came from UC Santa Cruz, and he said, Being a vocal conservative on campus is so hard, and in all honesty, it actually is, at least at UC Santa Cruz, that the kids who choose to do it are necessarily better, more informed, more committed than most of their liberal counterparts. They're also, as a result of perceived persecution, much more committed to the success of their movement. That's why so many bright conservatives exit college and dive into the politics, while so many liberals wander off to academia or NGOs or the Peace Corps. Campus progressives generally judge their ideologies triumphant and not really requiring their constant attention, while conservatives see theirs as embattled and in desperate need of more recruits. In the real world, of course, it's actually the opposite, but nobody knows that until their paths are already set. I think Klein is right about these students. I think he's right also about the way that campus culture can envelop young progressives in a moral mist that leaves them complacent and thoroughly unprepared for the moral mist wafting throughout the whole rest of the country. And I don't actually see vocally conservative students as a threat in my own courses. On the contrary, you know, insofar as they're committed to the value of ideas and the value of contestations over ideas, they're doing exactly what college students should do. So I also take exception to those of my colleagues on the left who see their teaching as a kind of advocacy. And when I hear leftist professors here and there arguing, well, their students watch six hours of Fox News every day, it's therefore their job to expose them to the other side for an hour. I imagine, you know, this goes back to my Fahrenheit 9-11 thing, to the conservative students it must just sound like the seventh hour of Fox News, right? Um, (coughs) Liberal professor harangued students, just like you were told by Hannity in the morning. It is an impoverished notion of dissent to think that your own classroom should provide the counterweight to all of conservatism in the rest of the culture. And it's a poor conception of rhetoric, sorry, that leads a professor to speak as if everyone in the room agrees with him. And it's a poor form of pedagogy to conduct oneself as if one's lectures could simply and suddenly cause those scales to fall from the eyes of a room full of undergraduates. Good teaching, I think, involves all kinds of ventriloquism. Sometimes I speak in my own voice. Sometimes I imitate Richard Rorty. Sometimes I refer students to a general consensus or a generally accepted set of historical facts, and sometimes I present interpretations that I disagree with or actively dislike in order to present lesser-known sides of a ten-sided question or simply to shake things up. And uh, here I borrow a page from NYU professor Siva Vyadhyanathan uh, who writes that he often finds himself being a classroom contrarian in the hopes that it would make his students sharper. Most often, Siva writes, At liberal places like Wesleyan, the University of Wisconsin, and NYU, I find myself playing devil's advocate. I take positions for the sake of challenging, lazy, lefty thought. I have voiced approval of Starbucks, Barnes & Noble, and Walmart, and made the occasional hemp-clothing-wearing student defend her criticisms of them. I have asked pointed questions that indicate support for television and web censorship. (laughs) I have argued against peer-to-peer file sharing. That will make you popular on campus. (coughs) In a course on multiculturalism movement, every student had inchoate positive feelings about pluralism, I spent the entire semester breaking it down and exposing its weaknesses. I tried to turn feelings into thoughts and encourage them to abandon some opinions and strengthen others. Somebody had to do it. Yes, and as I mentioned in the book, somebody has to do it, and it should be all in a day's work. And there really should be no reason to complain that the preponderance of liberal professors is in and of itself a form of persecution or an illegitimate state of affairs and needs of correction. I'll take one more piece of evidence on this. Uh, From um, National Association of Scholars President Stephen Balch, Uh, his testimony to the Pennsylvania Committee on Academic Freedom argued that because of the number of faculty members at state-funded universities in Pennsylvania who identify with a particular political group, there should be state oversight to make sure that there is no advocacy going on. So that's the evidentiary standard. Preponderance of uh, registered Democrats is ground for state state action. But watch his logic. This is the actual language. The legislature must expect a full accounting of progress made toward these goals. If good faith efforts are not forthcoming, the legislature should press for un- un- new university leadership that is prepared to undertake them. As a last resort, it might consider a comprehensive overhaul of institutional arrangements so as to better meet the obligations that accompany academic freedom. A comprehensive overhaul of institutional arrangements. It sounds kind of intrusive. Um, and I wanted to say, you know, uh, it was surely more elegant than the original Russian. <laughs> it had this sort of secondary connotation of let's party like it's 1929. But really, libertarians and conservatives in favor of comprehensive state overhaul of, large co- of, of college campuses. What in the world is going on? Well, I got a piece of testimony from Mark Bauerlein, a very bright, uh, he's been a visitor here, right? Um, And he teaches English at Emory, and he showed up in the Georgia uh, hearings to argue that for faculty, this is a quote, to hire only left-leaning faculty, teach only left-leaning thinkers, and explore only left-leaning opinions is to substitute advocacy for inquiry. For administrators to discourage conservative speakers while paying radical leftist five-figure fees is to throw a mainstream aura around one narrow range of belief. This is what we must demonstrate to trustees, alumni, politicians, and parents. Academic freedom isn't the property of the faculty. It is the responsibility of campus dwellers, yes, but the property of all citizens. Close quote. And, yeah, to make the short work of this, I think that is precisely wrong. There are certain norms of fairness that campuses should observe, but academic freedom is not, in fact, the property of all citizens. There are two more confusions behind these attacks. I'll touch on them just briefly for now. The first is that most critics of universities don't really distinguish between unconscious liberal bias and articulate liberal convictions. This is why I put bias and scare quotes in my own book. So they take the language of bias from critiques of the so-called liberal media where it's applied to New York Times, CBS News, whatever, uh, that um, movement conservatives believe lend a leftish slant to the news deliberately and unwittingly. But the language of bias is really not very well suited to the work of a researcher who has spent decades investigating American drug policy or conflicts in the Middle East and who has come to conclusions, well-researched and well-grounded conclusions that amount to more or less liberal critiques of current policies. Those conclusions are not bias, they are well-founded beliefs, and of course they should be presented along with legitimate competing beliefs in college classrooms. And Here I'm taking my distance uh, from Stanley Fish, who argued in an op-ed this summer that um, academic freedom is all very well until you begin to espouse a belief, and uh, that works fine only for college professors who have no beliefs. the question is whether you espouse a belief in such a way as to create that kind of you know, a really intolerable moral mist, I think. But also, what is a legitimate competing belief? Okay, we should not be in the business of debating, this is a classic example, whether the Holocaust happened. This is not a hypothetical matter. Okay? Um, the, the day you want to debate, you know, well, we have to give at least some uh, um, uh, serious hearing to the pro-slavery side uh, you know, I, I, I had to seek to bring that up as well, but sure enough, Horowitz just published in the front page an interview with a guy who believes that the Confederacy was in the right on this. And there are any number of these questions you, one would hope one hoped were settled, like, say, for example, about torture or habeas corpus, that have now become debatable yet again. But I'm going to take this from the other angle. I got a letter from the president of the college Republicans last spring asking me whether I taught both sides in my own course, and at the time I was teaching disability studies. And I said, well, what uh, aspect of disability studies uh, do you want to hear about? I mean, because some of this could get really absurd. One of Balch's pieces of testimony in Pennsylvania was that he complained that we'd, uh, we'd given about $100 to co-sponsor a fair trade conference. And as he said, you know, fair trade is clearly a you know, code word for liberal anti-globalization stuff. And I thought... What is he asking for? We have another hundred bucks given to the unfair trade conference. What? I mean, exactly. And the, the answer is kind of yes, actually. Um, and so I decided to go the other route and said, look, let's take the question of the ethics of selective abortion of fetuses with disabilities. There are about. Oh, eight or nine salient positions I can think of uh, on this one, including those who support abortion rights, but not if uh, the sonogram or amniocentesis detects a disability, then they would want to take away the right to terminate the pregnancy. There are other people who would want to uh, take away the right to prenatal screening at all. There are other people who are against abortion, except when it comes to fetuses with disabilities because they're kind of eugenics. It confounds every political position you can name. It's one of the reasons I love it, even though it is vexing beyond belief. And so, when I was through talking to this woman and her hair, was like, so, I realized, you know, not every position has more than one side, and not every position has only two. But this is the language with which some of our students enter the classroom. It's the language of cable news and mass media simulacra of debate. There is one side. There is another side. That is balance. Anything else is bias. A second confusion has to do with accountability. Now, I don't suppose that people here are quite as shadowed by this as people at Penn State, but... I I think you get your own version of it, I'm sure. Uh, It goes like this. Especially at Penn State and other public universities. We pay the bills for these proselytizing faculty liberals. We should have some say over what they teach and how they teach it. Public universities should be accountable to the public. And you know, at first blush, it sounds kind of reasonable. The taxes of the people of Pennsylvania do go to support Penn State, and I take the mission of public universities very seriously. From Virginia to Illinois to dear old state, I spent my entire adult life at public universities, and I'll be happy to explain my teaching and research to anybody who wants to hear about it. But first, let's look more closely at that funding and at what forms of accountability are appropriate to an educational institution. Only 20 years ago, 45% of Penn State's budget came from the state. Back then, in-state tuition was 2562 Our level of state support is now down to 10%, and not coincidentally, in-state tuition is 11500 So perhaps it's worth pointing out that state support has declined as state demands for accountability have increased. Or to put this more dramatically, I find myself sometimes faced with people who say, in effect, I pay 10% of your salary, that gives me the right to screen 100% of your thoughts. The kind ones will confine it just to the waking thoughts. Well, Penn State actually is accountable for that 10% of its budget. It comes to $300 million. It ain't chump change. We should and we do make every effort to ensure that those funds are spent responsibly. I think anyone who's dealt with a university purchasing system knows what I'm talking about. It involves filling out forms, providing blood samples, and triplicate. Because we have been, oh, I see you've been doing this all day. But, you know, actually, right before I got to Penn State, wherever I teach, There was a terrible embezzlement thing where people had defrauded the university of tens of thousands of dollars, and of course it makes sense that uh, we have to make sure our budget is not wasted either on that or on $1,000 popcorn makers that the Pentagon has at the moment. But that does not mean, and this is the critical distinction, it does not mean that legislators and taxpayers have the right or the ability to determine the direction of academic fields of research. And I say this with all due respect to my fellow Pennsylvanians. They have every right to know that their money is not being wasted, but they do not have the right to suggest that the biology department hire people involved with intelligent design, or that the astronomy department should take stock of the fact many more people believe in astrology than cosmology in this country, or the history department should concentrate more on great leaders and less on broad social movements, standard conservative complaint on that one, or for that matter that the philosophy department should put more emphasis on deontological rather than utilitarian forms of social contract. That's a really big one in Pennsylvania. No, uh, you know, people, Horowitz said, you know, you, we shouldn't have universities devote to one political, or philosophical faction. You really think, you know, you've got a whole department here with too many Stoics. <sighs> and, you know, because the people who teach in these who teach these subjects in public universities actually do have expertise in their fields, an expertise they have been accumulating all their adult lives. And that's why we believe that decisions about academic affairs should be conducted by means of peer review rather than by a plebiscite. I know it's a difficult contradiction to grasp. It took me a good uh, time to get a handle of it myself. On the one hand, professors at public universities should be accountable and accessible to the public. But on the other hand... They should determine the intellectual direction of their fields without regard to public opinion or political fashion. And that's precisely why academic freedom is so invaluable. It creates and sustains educational institutions that are independent of demographic variables. Which is to say, from Maine to California and everywhere between, the content of a public university or education, content of any university education, should not depend on whether 60% of the population doubts evolution. Whether 40% of the population of a state believes in angels. And more to the point, the content of university education should be independent of whatever political party is in power at any one moment in history. Now, would I say that if fine gold Democrats were in power in every state house from sea to shining sea? Absolutely. Without a moment's hesitation, legislative interference by Democrats would violate the principle of academic freedom just as surely as would interference by Republicans though I suppose the interference would probably take a somewhat different form and don't even get me started about the damn Greens. Now, about all those liberals in universities, you know, all the hemp-wearing, ponytailed, aging hippies at the podium still haranguing their students about the Vietnam War, you might ask, so what? So college faculties are full of liberals. Isn't this dog bites, man? Francisco Franco, still dead. Many people it seems, are not surprised or outraged by this at all. They kind of expect college faculties to be full of liberals the way they expect country clubs, to have corporate boardrooms, to be full of conservatives. It's simply the way the world is divvied up. They get the money and the power of the finely manicured golf courses, and we get the survey classes on the American novel. (laughs) (laughs) And I I don't see why conservatives would complain about this arrangement. To put this another way, the day that American liberals are identified primarily with Hollywood stars and college professors is not a good day for the cause of social justice, and I think conservatives know this every bit as much as I do. But I do know there's another nastier reason why they complain. I could go into it uh, in some detail in questions if you like. It has to do with disparate impact theory and affirmative action. Uh, Basically, they're arguing by analogy to affirmative action that there are practices in universities that have the discriminatory effect of weeding out conservatives. Um, I could go, like I say, into some detail. This this has to do with uh, uh, technicalities under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, but it has to do also with people who never liked the Civil Rights Act or Title VII or disparate impact theory and now want to use that logic of, of a kind of proportional representation against the liberals who once espoused it. Um, to give you an example I mean, the most egregious example I can think of is this uh, attorney Kenneth Lee a member of the Federal Society for Law and Public Policy who said in so many words the simple logic underlying much of contemporary civil rights law applies equally to conservative Republicans who appear to face clear practices of discrimination in American academia that are statistically even starker than previous belongings by race it's just jaw-dropping even starker than previous black by race. For one thing, you know, that would mean like, conservative scholars now have it worse than did African Americans under segregation and Jim Crow. You know, conservative is the new black. But that would also mean that on some campuses there would have to be fewer than zero conservatives. It's a deeply offensive claim in and of itself, but I think all the more offensive once you go back and look at the history of these folks' opposition to affirmative action programs in American higher education. Now, I know that some of this may seem like special pleading, on the part of a liberal humanities professor. But in closing, I want to insist to you that for the purposes of academic freedom, the liberal conservative, radical left, radical right convictions of any professor are actually beside the point. The principle of academic freedom covers all such convictions. But don't take it from me. Take it from a distinguished American intellectual who started out on the political left, actually in the Communist Party, but who who was horrified by by communism and spent most of his career as an outspoken conservative. This is Sidney Hook, and he's writing in his 1970 book, Academic Freedom and Academic Anarchy. He writes that the qualified teacher, whose qualifications may be inferred from his acquisition of tenure, has the right honestly to teach, reach and hold and proclaim any conclusion in the field of his competence. In other words, academic freedom carries with it the right to heresy as well as the right, right to restate and defend traditional views. This takes in considerable ground if a teacher in honest pursuit of an inquiry or argument comes to a conclusion that appears fascist or communist or racist or whatnot in the eyes of others, once he has been certified as professionally competent in the eyes of his peers, then those who believe in academic freedom must defend his right to be wrong, if they consider him wrong, whatever their orthodoxy may be like nothing better than using Sidney Hook against his progeny today because it's a really remarkable passage. All the more remarkable because he used that rationale, Sidney Hook used this rationale in the 60s to defend a hot-headed young Marxist named Eugene Genovese who in 1965 made public his support of the Viet Cong. And as Hook notes, he became immediately infamous for doing so. He didn't say anything about little Iquins, but still in 65, you know, stumping for Ho Chi Minh, was a dangerous thing to do. New Jersey's Democratic governor, Richard Hughes, rightly refused to fire Genovese from Rutgers on the grounds of aiding and abetting the enemy. And so the Republican gubernatorial candidate, Wayne Dumont, focused his entire campaign on the issue of Genovese's right to teach, and Hook came to his defense. And the AUP awarded Rutgers President Mason Gross their Alexander Michael John Award in 66. It is safe to say, I think, we have come a long way from principle to conservatives like Hook to snake oil salesmen like Horowitz. But you may wonder, why would Hook defend someone who voices his support for the Viet Cong at the very outset of the Vietnam War? And this goes back to Churchill as well. As odious as his remark was, it wasn't just a free speech thing. If he sincerely believed in the good Germans question, if he sincerely believed that we are somehow complicit with the crimes committed in our name and on U.S. foreign policy, then that's a legitimate research inquiry. I don't like his conclusions, and in fact, I think the way he phrased them helped to undermine the legitimacy of the inquiry itself. But that question is absolutely a legitimate question, no matter who the superpower in question is. And to understand this point about why that is defensible, I think you have to make a distinction between substantive liberalism and procedural liberalism. Liberalism, Because one of the things at stake here is the ideal of independent intellectual inquiry, the kind of inquiry whose outcomes cannot be known in advance and cannot be measured in terms of efficiency or productivity. I mean, I know, okay, there's some of the reasons why our critics loathe liberal campuses. It's not simply that they they control all three branches of government for now and are striking out at a few areas of American cultural life they don't dominate. That's true. But there's something more radical going on with these attacks. These are not simply attacks on the substance of liberalism, like the specific fiscal or social policies stemming from the progressive era, the New Deal, the Great Society. But on procedural liberalism, which is something I went back to with the question of disagreement, on the idea that no one political faction should control every aspect of a society. And so there's a sense in which traditional conservatives are procedural liberals, as are liberals themselves, but members of the radical right and radical left are not. And the radical right's contempt for procedural liberalism, with its checks and balances and guarantees that minority reports will be incorporated into the body politic. These things can be seen in recent defenses of the theory that the president has the right to set aside at will certain laws and provisions of the Constitution. And in the religious right's increasingly venomous and hallucinatory attacks on the judicial branch, most of whose members were appointed by Republicans. What animates the radical right is not really so much a specific liberal belief about stem cell research here and gay civil unions there. On a more abstract level, it's not about any real one one, uh, liberal issue at all. Rather, it's about the very existence of areas in political and intellectual independence that do not answer directly and favorably to the state. So, one last example. When in April 2005, Alabama State Representative Gerald Allen proposed a bill that would have prevented Alabama's public libraries from buying books by gay authors or involving gay characters... He wasn't actually acting as a conservative. Although I have to say, again, I I can't resist the snark. Um, The determination of who's a gay author or gay character would require Alabama to hire like 100 queer theorists. (laughs) Just to say, you know, bring them on. But I really do think, to make the more state political point, real conservatives don't do this kind of thing. This is the the action instead of a radical right. In fact, his original intent was to strip libraries of all such works from Shakespeare to Alice Walker, and as he put it, I don't look at it it as censorship, I look at it as protecting the hearts and souls and minds of our children. And thankfully, relatively few public officials see it as their job to protect the children of America from Western culture. (laughs) But some do, and that's why academic freedom is so important. It may not be written into the Bill of Rights, but, you know, actually the real one, the, uh, the one in the Constitution. It is far younger than the rights enumerated there and far more fragile. But together with freedom of speech and freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, freedom to petition the government for a redress of grievances, and the freedom of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures, Academic freedom is an aspect of procedural liberalism that is one of the cornerstones of a free society. If you believe in the ideals of the open and free society and in the intellectual legacies of the Enlightenment, you should then believe in academic freedom, and you should believe that it is a freedom worth defending. Thank you. I'd be happy to take questions, but only if you don't disagree with me, because I can't stand it. <laughs> yes? Yeah, they've eroded it. It's all their fault. Um, <laughs> oh, goodness. You know, uh, the, the one thing that has changed dramatically, quite apart from the d- d- decline of the... Um, uh, from uh, Hook to Horowitz, is the number of people teaching in American universities without tenure. And it's just staggering. Uh, in my book, I put it at something like 70%. I seem to have underestimated it at something more like 75%. Um, at the moment, and for the past 10 years, every Uh, For every tenure-track position that has been created, universities have been creating three non-tenure-track positions. So that same sort of outsourcing just-in-timing that's going on in the rest of the economy is here as well, as I'm sure you know. Uh, To some extent, that is inevitable. I can't imagine, even though I'm not going to come here and stump for flexibility, I will say that at Penn State this past year we had a sudden um, uh, flood of new undergraduates, uh, new freshmen. And when that happens, as you may know, basically the entry courses, the gen ed courses, the RET 105s, the introductory math courses, basically they get set people out on trucks with bullhorns looking for people who till the fields to come and teach at Penn State for the semester. And so some measure of flexibility is undoubtedly uh, just a response to fluctuations in student enrollment, but that's only a small percentage of the number of uh, adjuncts that are being hired. One of the things I do in the book is I point to two people. These people have no job protection whatsoever. They are basically relying on the same kind of due process and grievance procedure that you might find at Burger King. Um, And One of the people I take up, um, I'm not sure, none of of my conservative critics of this book in the past two months have pointed out that one of the people who was summarily fired and whose cause, I think, is is just is a guy named Thomas Klosek from DePaul, who was an adjunct there for many years and apparently got into a shouting match with students who were pro-Palestinian. And I think he may have said, it's very hard to get any you know, real account of what the hell went on and things like this, but he may have said really kind of a bar in things like there are no such things as Palestinians and you, know, you people are responsible for all this trouble, blah, blah, blah. But um, if he had a tenure, he would have a job today. And any uh, defense of academic freedom that covers Ward Churchill, or for that matter, covers some uh, quite stridently pro Palestinian faculty at Columbia who were investigated uh, in the past couple of years should also cover Thomas Klosek. At the very least, he should have himself a hearing before he was fired, but he was fired before the week was out, and this was early in 2005. So the question of how adjuncts fit into the larger question of academic freedom is a really kind of sorry one. Right now, academic freedom is tied almost exclusively to tenure and to a couple of universities where there are due process grievance procedures. Campus by campus, sometimes it depends on whether the faculty senate uh, works and whether it passes anything that administration actually pays attention to. But it's a a dire, dire problem. Three quarters—something—three quarters of the people teaching at American universities have no job protections whatsoever. Hmm. I think, yeah, oh, oh, some people, oh. um, in fact, my colleague uh, Sam Richards, who got himself into Horowitz's book because he worked on this thing called the Race Relations Project at Penn State. Uh, he's much more the kind of, uh, type of person who would go in and say, you know, I make my ideology clear up front and so forth. And uh, I'm a little uneasy with that because it, it, it sort of skirts the question of whether there are serious power imbalances involved, and simply making things transparent in that way does not sort of uh, obviate them. Um, but no, the idea, especially in the human sciences, that there's um, – what they, what they want is not objectivity but balance. And I think it's worth putting uh, pressing the word balance until it screams for mercy rather than objectivity. Because I mean, Objectivity has taken such hits um, over the last 20, 30 years in the, in the humanities that you really have to go pretty far to find some the last remaining positivists in the faculty club who believe that there really is just an objective account of what the Civil War was about, right? and everything else is a sort of you know, interpretation. Um, but no, I mean, I, I, I'm glad that's a laugh line because one of the things I struck from the book at the last moment, because it cut a little too close to home, but I've been using <laughs> in other contexts ever since, was the, um, a faculty member who got called on the carpet by the dean because a local parent who happened to like, be a car dealer and therefore you know, had some control of a curriculum... <laughs> certainly could get the ear of the dean, complained that in his political science class, his student, his son, had learned that black voters in the U.S. abandoned the Republican Party in the 20s and 30s and overwhelmingly went to the Democratic Party. What are you going to do about that? I mean, sort of, well, you know, a uh, Republican Party actually was formed. It uh, had to do with a civil war. It had to do with slavery. matter. Then the whole plutocracy thing started, and then there was a depression and da, 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 and then you still had your blue dog Democrat. i mean this, this seems to me as objective as it gets, right, and even that you know is objectionable so yeah i think i think, I, I, I think you 're right <laughs> I think the idea that you 're going to come up with um, an objective account on you know, uh, voting patterns over the past one hundred and fifty years is uh, um, is an illusion, and yet there are relatively uncont- you know, that, that line, you know, facts are interpretations that nobody bothers to argue about anymore. That is a relatively objective account of what happened to the black vote in the early decades of this century. And, you know, it's, it's a closing parenthesis the Southern strategy and the final abandonment uh, uh, by the South of, of what the remaining conservative blue dog Democrats. Um, so, yeah, uh, I think it's possible to be uh, reasonably objective, likewise, about the, the Iraqi flag and st- still run afoul of these folks. Um, so I, I think that's why and it, you know, they, they take the term fair and balance you know, largely from oh, a certain uh, network um, and it seems to, to poll better because a lot of people who don't believe in objectivity in humanities and arts and you know, some of the social sciences will still believe in balance should be every bit as pernicious No questions about disparate impact theory? God damn. Okay. Sure. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. how does that kind standard fit into your discussion of, I guess, kind of the more driven situation Yeah, the making stuff up thing is not good. Um, yeah, no, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, and, and sorry, I, didn't, I actually there were a couple people up there. I was doing that every now and then, um, and and not having uh, small seizures. Um, so I'm sorry I didn't recognize you at first. Let me. Yeah, that's a great because. The defense of Ward Churchill now takes the form of arguing that this is fruit from the poison tree, that the investigation is only undertaken because he was called out by O'Reilly and the the right-wing noise machine, and no one would have investigated his scholarship but for that. The report that was issued, the 124-page report that was issued about Churchill's research, is really quite smart about batting that argument away and saying, yeah, it does seem weird that Churchill has only come under investigation in 2005, 2006. The relevant question is why not? for now. Um, and I think, I mean, one of the things that went on with, uh, with Colorado's hiring of him, they, I mean, it wasn't as if he was an unknown package. They knew they were getting a, 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 a provocateur whose book, A uh, Little Matter of Genocide, had, was in fact an award-winning book. It's not as if the man had done no scholarship of any import whatsoever. But the things he's now found, uh, the practices he's now found to be uh, guilty of, really do open up a, the, the ethics question. Um, and this is where I think the Sidney Hook defense of academic freedom does not fall. In other words, little Eichmann's remark, odious, but clearly legitimate. You know, uh, still fodder for right-wing you know, media, but the question of whether, you know, we are all somehow complicit in the actions of our government having elected the folks, that's a legitimate question. These things are something else. It's not just plagiarism. It's also writing things under other people's names and then citing them, which is like a whole other order of, of, of thing. Then, and this is another one I don't get, and it's kind of Monty Python-esque, the smallpox blankets. The legend of the smallpox blankets that were distributed to the Sioux and to to other uh, uh, tribes in the 1830s. You know, the genocidal record is clear enough. There's no need to exaggerate it. Why in the world, of all the things done between the 15th century and the 19th, especially, again, you don't have to dig very hard to find it. You have, like, a plan for Indian extermination by us. (laughs) The Trail of Tears alone is a, a, a massive human rights crime, let alone. So why invent stuff? And I, the best explanation of that I heard is that it does go back to the Germans, that part of the rhetorical strategy here is to uh, ramp up, you know, just keep upping the ante until everything is on the order of the Holocaust. That's what that's about and again i think it undermines the, the very inquiry and i kind of don't get it so i think uh, i think this uh, this uh, inquiry uh, far from being illegitimate and being you know uh, spurred by the uh, by the forces of o'reilly is entirely uh, uh, what academic freedom def- uh, defenders should have wanted an internal investigation not investigation conducted by bill owens and a bunch of people uh, working in the legislature this was actually a review by peers now Here's the last really naughty question, and for the first time tonight, I'm going to waffle what to do. Uh, I believe the, the, board, the, the review panel itself was divided on as some people suggesting suspension, only a couple suggesting firing. And, you know, it seems to be open and shut. Right, Come on, this is, this is an ethical violation of academic standards. If, in fact, we don't tolerate plagiarism from our students, and we shouldn't, and we don't tolerate, let alone you know, citing other people's articles that are actually yours and making stuff up, um, why in the world would we tolerate in the professoriate? And to that I have only this reply, Doris Kearns Goodwin. We are now in a very weird penumbral area where some people get fired for plagiarism and some people go on c span Okay. What Goodwin did was basically take the work of, wholesale of other authors, you know, sort of chopped into her, the, whatever book she was writing that month, and you know, put it and it was it was it was wholesale. It was it was not accidental. It was you know stuff written by other people. Michael Belsile at Emory, his book Arming America won two historians awards, and then it found, I mean he, this poor guy. Oh, my goodness, dug himself deeper and deeper with it. It, it turned out, um, first of all, the, the gun enthusiasts were enraged by his argument because he was suggesting that not a lot of people owned guns in early America. didn't really matter all that much. Now, again, I couldn't find it in me to have a dog in this fight. I just don't care how many guns people owned, but some people did. And then it turned out that Belsile had made all his stuff up. And then his excuses got weirder and weirder, the dog ate my records kind of excuses. No, a, a, a flood destroyed all the records of one thing, and I thought I put my notes someplace else, and eventually he was fired, and his awards were rescinded. So you've got Belsail on one end of a plagiarist and confabulator who clearly ran afoul of academic standards and, and, and ethical standards for research. He's gone. Goodwin and also, I believe, Joseph Ambrose, uh, Stephen Ambrose. I'm, I'm lighting him and Joseph Ellis. You know, basically, people who pick up, put out these big historical tomes about, you know, John Adams and people. Um, uh, Stephen Ambrose, likewise, did the same thing as Goodwin. He still has a job. Now, did he retire? I'm, I'm, it's, yeah, hard to keep track of. And Goodwin, you know, she was chastised, um, but still has a job. Uh, Dershowitz, Alan Dershowitz, has been accused of plagiarism. Those things are still pending. He Uh, Norman Finkelstein are basically doing a cage match to the death until both of them die. Um, So where does Ford Churchill fall uh, in this rogues gallery is the question. And I'm not sure I would vote to fire. I I think it's it's systemic, though, and I, I wouldn't be against it. So that's my waffling. If you really put me on that committee, I don't know what I would do. I would certainly... A vote to suspend the very, very least, because I do think this kind—that kind of uh, malfeasance—is damaging to the profession as a whole. In fact, is unprofessional. Yeah. That's. How serious are they? Some of them are very, very serious, I think, um, because there is so little understanding of what professors do, and such a, a, a deep well of public outrage about whatever it is they do. Right? Um, but let me get let, let, let me make this straight. This is not an attempt. I, if we're talking about you know political. Uh, strategies of, of persuasion and all. This is not an attempt to appeal to everybody. There are certain folks out there who simply don't like gender and sexuality being discussed in courses on gender and sexuality. There's no, uh, uh, there's nothing, there's nothing, no argument wins that one. And and um, the fact that my uh, classroom became a gay class a gay-friendly classroom, is something I can say for which I. I do not apologize, but which I realize you know, would not go over very well in certain quarters, including many of the quarters that surround the campus on which I teach. Um, so let's get that straight. We have to write off 30% of the electorate uh, pretty much right there. Um, The remaining uh, people are basically people who uh, would agree on procedural grounds that it's not a good idea. I mean, there's still enough of a libertarian streak in the center and right of American politics that people can see what's wrong with giving legislators control over this kind of minutia of our lives and our our work. In other words, they may not like what you do in the classroom, but actually they looked over the voting records of Americans over the last 25 years and said, no, I can't see any massive shift to the left going on here. Um, whatever those faculty are doing there, you know, it must be a wash. In fact, if you break down the voting records by education level, a very curious thing occurs. People with the least education vote heavily Democrat. People with some high school, so forth, this is your, your, your white working class that has just been losing ground for the last 30 years, they're overwhelmingly Republican. People with some college are the most heavily conservative voters in the whole electorate. People with four-year degrees Slightly liberal, and the postgraduate folks are like nine to one liberal. So clearly, our task is just to keep the people in college <laughs> until the indoctrination programs take hold in year, I think, year seven or eight, and just PhD them to death. <laughs> Actually, that argument won't work. Scratch that one. Um, no, and I think uh, the part of, when we speak of the overworked professorate, right, we're uh, dealing with. I mean, most of the people who are adjuncts, by the way, are not adjuncts teaching one or two courses a term. They're adjuncts doing a great deal of grading every week, and they really don't have the time to write op-eds and blog and come to visit places like this. Um, and so, I, I think uh, one of the things, simply, is that it's a scandal that AUP membership is as low as it is. It's about forty thousand people. There are over a million college professors in the country. Uh, what in the world does it take? I mean, at Penn State, when they passed 177, most of my colleagues said, this could be a problem if it becomes law. It, it is law. It says, you know, well, we're all beyond, you know, wake up and smell the coffee. Coffee was burned since yesterday, and you're still, you know, thinking, well, we could put coffee on. Um, uh, one of the reasons I think these attacks are serious, and I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment, is that professors I think are a notoriously disorganized constituency. Even the look how few unions they have are, 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 you know, campus by campus. There's almost no sense of, 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 of a collective professoriate. You know, there's no, you know, uh, look for the professor-laboral kind of unionism among, among professors, and so they can be picked off pretty easily, one by one. And I know David Horowitz laughs himself to sleep about this every night. But on the other hand, when you talk about how serious the questions are, I th- these attacks are, I do think that again the grown-up Republicans and the ones I'm so nostalgic for Eisenhower Republicans that I can't tell you, because you know you may not like the way they govern, but they believed in governing. They actually believed, you know, that, that the apparatus of the state should be wielded in certain ways that you know that involve actual policies and actual you know uh, domestic and foreign. And I think those folks uh, who you know. Um, I think when you deal with someone say like George Will, you're almost dealing with that old uh, Warner Brothers cartoon of the, um, the the sheepdog and the wolf. The wolf tries to steal the the, the sheep all, all day long and the sheepdog, you know, basically beats him into a pulp and then at five o'clock they both punch out, shake hands, and go home. Right? You know, George Will will pummel you all day long and then he'll meet you for a brandy in the faculty club because, you know, come on, we've got other things to talk about here. Um, and so I don't think I, I think he to some extent and people like him are shadow boxing. I don't think it's a serious attack at all. They just think you know, liberal faculty, blah, 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 tax and spend Democrats, blah, blah, blah. It's whatever, you know, we'll, we'll get the job done. The people who truly believe that liberal secularists on campuses are threats to the, uh, threats to the union, those are scary folks. And again, I think they, they're uh, playing mainly to that 30%, and it's part of my strategy to make it clear just how Horowitz plays to them. He himself, I actually think there are two David Horowitzes, one who's a serious intellectual or wants to be one, wants to be given a visiting professorship somewhere. And, and be a historian of ideas and a person who survived the 60s and switched sides and so forth. And there's another Horowitz who wants to be basically, for academia, what Grover Norquist is for taxes, just the provocateur in general. And whether or not he believes, you know, that one David Horowitz believes the campaign of another is a question for future psycho-historians to determine. But I do think that there is a constituency, it's largely a religious right, um, that takes these things deadly seriously. Yeah. Thanks very much.